Good evening. Find your way to Ezekiel 38. We made our way to Ezekiel 38. Just want you to be aware I am locked and loaded and the safety is off. I'm ready. If you want to find Genesis 10, just kind of put your thumb there or a ribbon there. I'll read a few verses from Genesis 10 here momentarily. But this, this whole study from really Ezekiel 34 all the way through Ezekiel 39 has been interesting. You know, it's been, the whole book's been interesting, but it's something about these last five chapters that's really kind of captivated me. You know, the Lord's really been revealing through Ezekiel the blueprint to Israel's restoration. He began in chapter 34 by condemning the false shepherds. And then he declares that he himself will fulfill the role as the good shepherd. 35 and 36, God will cleanse the land there. He's planting the people in the land and he's acting for his name's sake. Ezekiel 37, we see the nation being resurrected. We see the nation being united at the end of chapter 37. And in 38 and 39, we're going to see the nation will be attacked and the nation will be defended. The nation is in their land, and they're enjoying the facade of peace, the illusion of prosperity. But they've yet to bow the knee to Jesus. And it's in this moment of despair, as Israel is attacked, it's in this moment she will finally cry out for Jesus. She will finally change her mind on who Jesus is, the mourning, the sorrow will be turned to comfort and restoration. And it all culminate with God's purpose that is plainly laid out for us in Ezekiel 39.22. It says, The house of Israel shall know that I am their God from that day forward. This is where, this is where it's building to. This is the head it's coming to. So the title for the message today will be Gog, Magog, and my God. So, we'll begin. It's a, a lengthy chapter, so we'll just kind of take it as we go. We'll read verses 1 through 6. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face toward Gog, in the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and I will turn you about and put hooks in your jaws and will bring you out and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great host, all of them with buckler and shield, wielding swords, Persia, Cush, and Put are with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all his hordes, Beth Togomar with the... With the Beth Togomar, from the uttermost parts of the north with all his hordes, many people are with you. So we see in verse 1 that, that Ezekiel is to set his face toward Gog of the land of Magog. And then he says, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal and prophesy against him. So one point we're going to make here is Gog is a man. He's a chief prince. He's a leader. This is going to be repeated in verse 3. O Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. And to kind of just strengthen that point, 
Down in verse 10, if you want to glance down. Verse 10 says, On that day thoughts will come into your mind, and you will devise an evil scheme. You see this man, this leader, this political military leader here. 21, verse 21. I will summon a sword against Gog. And the footnote you have there in your ESV says that could be translated as him. Him. I will summon a sword against him. Verse 22. With pestilence and bloodshed I will enter into judgment with him. I will, I will reign upon him and his hordes and as many people who are with him. So Gog is a him. A chief prince, the architect of this attack we're going to be reading about here. So the question is posed, is Gog a personal name? Or is it simply more of a title like Caesar or Pharaoh? And we can't be certain either way, but the main point is he is a man and he is an individual. A political and military leader. That's who Gog is. Now on to Magog. Son of man, set your face toward Gog, the man Gog. Of the land of Magog. That's, we're not told much about this. This word's really only mentioned twice in all of Scripture here in Revelation 20. But in verse 15 here, we read, talking to Gog, You will come from your place out of the uttermost parts of the north and many peoples with you. So wherever Magog is, it's in the north. And then we're told here that Gog is of the land of Magog, and he's the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Now again, we can't with any certainty identify these locations. But Genesis 10 has something pretty interesting there. Genesis 10 is going to be the uh, generations of Noah. As Noah, you know, got stepped foot off the ark with his three sons, Shem, Ham, Japheth. Genesis 10, verse 2, these are the sons of Japheth. Gomer, Magog, Mediah, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tyrus. So three of the characters we're reading about here, Magog, Meshach, and Tubal, that's what we just read in Ezekiel, all of these are sons of Japheth. Again, we can't be certainty, we can't with any certainty identify these locations, but these nations were apparently founded or were named after their founder. And these attacks come from the north. Those are the things we're certain about. And then we're going to move on in verse 3. In verse 3 it says here, you say, to, oh, you say to Gog, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. So God is against this man. He's against these nations and he's against this alliance. We're told that much. Verse 4, we see, I will turn you about and put hooks in your jaws and bring you out, you and all your army. Verse 4, I will bring you out. Verse 16, I will bring you out against my land. Verse 17, that I would bring you against them. This is the Lord speaking, so make a, make a mental note. Who's running the show? Who's running the show? The Lord's running the show here. Verse 5, we read on. Persia, Cush, and Put are with them. All of them with shield and helmet. Then we read verse 6. Gomer and all his hordes. Beth Togomar and the uttermost parts of the north or with all his hordes. So again, back in Genesis 10, we read in verse 5 there. Sorry, verse 6. 
The sons of Ham. These are the descendants of Noah. The sons of Ham are Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. Then we read on. Here in Ezekiel, we read about a man named Gomer and Beth Togomar. The word Beth in Hebrew could mean house, like Bethlehem, the house of bread. Bethel, the house of God. Beth Togomar could mean the house of Togomar, right? So who was one of the sons of Japheth? It was Gomer. Who was one of the sons of Gomer? Togomar. I'm just, it's, I know we typically don't like genealogies, but this one I found rather neat. Noah steps foot off the ark with his three sons, Shem, Ham, Japheth. And here in Ezekiel we read about Magog, Meshach, Tubal, Persia, Cush, Put, Gomer, and the house of Togomah. Eight nations, eight people groups. And with the exception of Persia, all of them are identified in Genesis 10. Every one of them. So in Genesis 10, or here in Ezekiel 38, we see the descendants of Japheth and the descendants of Ham attacking the descendants of Shem. Just a fact. Just the facts. Just the facts, ma'am. Verse 5, we, we read there that they're heavily armed. They're prepared for war. This says, there many peoples are with you in verse 6. Many peoples, that's the size of the army. They're with you, with you. Again, still speaking to Gog, the leader of this force. The one whom God is against. And take note of this, that this eight-nation alliance, the Lord doesn't strike them while they're unsuspecting. He doesn't strike them when they're weak. He tells them in verse 7 to be ready. Keep ready. Be ready, keep ready. You and all your host that are assembled about you, be a guard for them. Be ready. The Lord is going to call this man to the mat. He goes on and says in verse 18, He says there on that day, the day that God shall come against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, my wrath will be roused in anger. So you want to scheme, you want to plan, you want to train, you want to prepare, then you be ready. You will be summoned, you will be called to arms, as the NIV puts it. Verse 8, And after many days you will be mustered, you will be summoned, you will be called to arms. In the latter years you will go against the land that is restored from war, the land whose people were gathered from many nations upon the mountains of Israel, which have been a continual waste. His people were brought out from the peoples and now dwell securely, all of them. So now we're told when to expect this. After many days. We're told to expect this in the latter days. And then we begin to see the target of this alliance. You know, this little eight-nation alliance. What's their target? He says here, you will go against the land that is restored from war. The land whose people were gathered from the many peoples. So that's, that's, the, that's the target. That's the enemy. That's, that's who they're going to strike. And just in chapter 38 alone, you're going to have the, word, I mean, the phrase, the land, mentioned eight times. Referring to Israel. It says, the land that is restored from war. The land of unwalled villages. They will attack like a cloud covering the land. And then in verse 18, it starts to get more specific. But on the day that God shall come out against the land of Israel, very specific, 
Verse 16, In the latter days I will bring you, Gog, against my land. So again, this is God's land that He's given to the people of Israel as an everlasting possession. We were told that in chapter 36 that He was going to give to them, He was going to plant them in the land that I gave to your fathers. So all of this hatred of all the people is directed at the Jews in their land. And then we see as we move on halfway through verse 8 that the land of Israel, whose people, the Jews, were gathered from many peoples, plural. His people were brought out from the peoples, plural, and now dwell securely, all of them. On down in verse 12, it'll tell us the peoples there were gathered from the nations, plural. This is, a, this is not a reference to the return from Babylon. This is going to be more of a worldwide scattering, you know, from the nations, plural. This is what is being referred to here. Then we read on in verse 9. You will advance, coming on like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land. You and all your hordes and many people with you. This is not uh, pictured as a pop-up shower. This is a storm, a front that you see coming, moving, advancing, covering the land. As the as them storm clouds come and the land just gets dark, as it blocks out the sun, that's what you're seeing. Covering the land with all your hordes, with many, many people. Verse 10, Thus says the Lord God, On that day thoughts will come into your mind, and you will devise an evil scheme and say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will fall on the quiet people who dwell securely, all of them dwelling without walls and having no bars or gates. You will devise a scheme, is what the Lord tells God. You will say, I will go up. I will fall on the quiet people. You see, this is the heart. This is the thoughts. These are the plans of Magog. But remember verse 4. Verse 4 taught us what? The Lord says what? I will bring you out. Verse 16. In the latter days, I will bring you out against the land. So the question, who is bringing Gog out against this quiet people? The Lord is. But is Gog unwilling? No. It's his evil plan. It's his scheme that we read about here. Look, this is a common thread throughout Scripture. You can read about it in Pharaoh, in the Exodus. You can read about it with the Jews as they scheme and plan and plot and murder their Messiah. Look, it's just, it's a common thread through Scripture. And all the way through it, two things stay consistent. God's sovereignty is never compromised. And man's actions are never excused. Amen. Verse 11, it talks about, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages, fall on the quiet people who dwell securely. The NIV reads this as a peaceful people, an unsuspecting people. The people have this false sense of security as they're staying in the land here. They're not aware of the presence of any danger. Look, this may catch the people off guard, but God is fully aware of this. But the question begs, why would they attack this quiet people in a land that has been recently restored from war? We're told plainly why they're doing this. Verse 12, to seize spoil to carry off plunder, 
to turn your hand against the waste places that are now inhabited and the people who were gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods who dwell at the center of the earth, Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish and all its leaders will say to you, Have you come to see spoil? Have you assembled your host to carry off plunder, to carry away silver and gold and take away livestock and goods and to seize great spoil? Why are they attacking? To seize spoil, to carry off plunder. Look, I, I hope you notice just how emphatic Ezekiel describes their motives. They're, they're coming to seize the spoil, to carry off the plunder, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and good, and to seize great spoil. Just verb after verb after verb describing their greed and motives. And then in verse 13, we saw this question that's posed by Sheba, Dedan, and the merchants of Tarshish and all its leaders. Have you come, have you come to seize the spoil? To carry off all its gold and silver and livestock and goods and to seize it? Is that right? Look, they're not running to Israel's defense. Don't read it that way. They're not even challenging the morals of Gog. They're circling like vultures. They're waiting, waiting, anticipating to benefit from this great spoil. So, so far, you know, we've had a lot thrown at us here. It's the who, what, when, where, why, who. It's this eight-nation alliance. What? They're planning an attack. When? In the latter years. Where? In the land of Israel. Why? To see spoil. Greed. So just some more questions. Did Israel provoke this? No, they're a quiet people. Scripture's already said that. They're quiet people living in the land of unwalled village. I mean, they're dwelling in their land with, with no walls, having no bars and no gates. Is anyone discouraging this attack? Anyone trying to caution Gog and Magog in this alliance? No. They all stand back and just plan to benefit from this. If they're not participating, they plan to benefit from it. They're going to catch the fallout. No one sides with this quiet, unsuspecting people except, verse 14 through 16, Therefore, Son of Man, prophesy and say to God, Thus says the Lord God, On that day, when my people Israel are dwelling securely, will you not know it? Will you come from your place out of the uttermost parts of the north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great host, a mighty army? Will you come up against my people Israel like a cloud covering the land? In the latter days I will bring you against my land, that the nations may know me. When through you, O God, O Gog, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. See, it says here, on the day that they're dwelling securely, will you not know it? God knows this. Gog knows this. So this is like taking candy from a baby. Quiet people, no walls, no bars, no gates, unsuspecting. However, they've overlooked the fact that this is God's land and these are God's people. And notice the people who are dwelling securely are being referred to now in verse 14 as my people, Israel. These are my people. Verse 16, will you come up against my people, 
Israel. So when we read verse 15, and you see Gog and Magog and Meshach and Tubal in this great alliance, you will come from your place out of the north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great host, a mighty army, great numbers, mighty army, good battle plan, wrong alliance. The New Testament passage in Romans 8 where it tells us, if God is for us, who can be against us? Likewise, if God is against us, who can be for us? And we're told in no uncertain terms in verse 3, the Lord says, I am against you, O Gog. So no numbers, no army, no plan, no chance. This plan was doomed from the start. And then we move on. In verse 17, Thus says the Lord God, Are ye, are ye, are you he of whom I spoke in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who in those days prophesied for years that I'll bring you against them? We can read this again in, in chapter 39, verse 8. It reads similar, it's kind of reiterated there. Behold, it is coming and it will be brought about, declares the Lord God. That is the day of which I have spoken. Look, there's no direct reference to Gog prior to Ezekiel. Like I said, Gog and Magog are really only mentioned here in Ezekiel 38 and 39, and they're going to be mentioned in Revelation 20. But several, several prophets prophesied of an invading army coming against Israel in the last days. This isn't new. So let's finish this chapter. And don't get excited when we finish the chapter. We've got a lot more to cover on the back end of it. All right, let's 18 through 23 here. But on that day, the day that Gog shall come against the land of Israel, declares the Lord, my wrath will be roused in anger. For in my jealousy and in my blazing wrath, I declare on that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea and the birds of the heaven and the beasts of the field and all the creeping things that creep on the ground and all the people who are on the face of the earth shall quake at my presence. And the mountains shall be thrown down and the cliffs shall fall. Every wall shall tumble to the ground. I will summon a sword against Gog. On all my mountains declared the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. With pestilence and bloodshed, I will enter into judgment with him. I will rain upon him and his hordes and the many people who are with him. Torrential rains and hailstorms, fire and sulfur. So I will show my greatness and my holiness to make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Verses 18 through 23, we see when Gog and his cohorts attack, the Lord's wrath will be roused. The Lord will defend His land and His people. He will bring about a great earthquake that causes everyone and everything to tremble. The fish, the birds, the beasts, all the creeping things, and all the people will tremble at His presence. The mountains, the cliffs, the walls all come down. We read in verse 21 that the people are thrown into disarray and they begin attacking one another. We read in verse 22, 
the Lord is going to enter into judgment with him, Gog, and his army, and the many peoples that are with him. And in verse 23, we see the result of this, that the Lord's greatness and his holiness will be known. That's the purpose. That's the end result. Okay. Now that we've kind of ran through that chapter, let's try to place this prophecy in a, in a timeline because this is where it gets a little tricky. Gog and Magog, as I said earlier, are only mentioned here, Ezekiel 38 and 39, and they're mentioned in um, Revelation 20. I will read Revelation 20, verse 7 for you. Revelation 20, verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended... Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints of the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. So in Revelation 20, the battle is clearly at the end of the millennial reign. There's no doubt in that because it says, when the thousand years are ended, he, Satan is released to go and gather this army. So that's, that's going to be a, the end of the millennial battle in Revelation 20. No doubting that. And it's so tempting, really, to connect these two passages. But that's only because Gog and Magog are, are mentioned. And so you just want to make that connection. But look, the context of these battles is different. The purpose of these battles are different. And the aftermath of these battles are different. So here are some problems we're going to run through connecting this passage in Ezekiel to the one in Revelation. So just to examine a few verses. In that passage I just read to you, Revelation 20, it said that fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The next verse, the devil will be thrown into the lake of fire forever. The next verse, it talks about the graves will be opened, the dead were raised, and they will stand in judgment at the great white throne judgment. That's the one, two, three punch that we see in Revelation 20. Now, if you're still with me in Ezekiel, look over in verse 39. Sorry, chapter 39. Look with me in verse 12. It says there in verse 12 of 39, For seven months... The house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. The bordering will be burying the dead from that great battle. So the question is posed, why would they need to bury the dead if the Lord consumed them? Why would they need to bury the dead only to how the graves opened and the dead standing in judgment? Why cleanse the land if we're entering into a new heaven and a new earth? See, these are questions you have to ask if this battle is the battle we read about in Revelation 20. There's some things that, that the aftermath of the battle just doesn't really add up. Because after Revelation 20, we read in Revelation 21, a new heaven and a new earth. But in this battle, we see them burying the dead, although the dead's going to, you know, the graves are going to be open, they're going to be judged. We also see in verse 9 of chapter 39. Then those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and make fires with the weapons and burn them, shields and bucklers, bow and arrows, clubs and spears. They will make fires for them for seven years so that they will not need to take wood out of the field or cut down any out of the forest, for they will make fires of the weapons. For seven years they're burning weapons. 
That doesn't really seem to square with the new heaven and new earth that follows the, the battle of Revelation 20. You see, the aftermath of these two events indicate to me that these are two separate yet certain events. The battle in Ezekiel 38 and 39, to me, fits with a tribulation battle. The end of the tribulation battle or somewhere in there. Now, you may hear us refer to the tribulation period. So let me just help you define that if you're not really sure what the tribulation period refers to. The tribulation period consists of seven years. The first half is going to be peaceful. The first three and a half years seems to be peaceful. The last three and a half years is going to be really hell on earth. It's referred to in Daniel as Daniel's 70th week. It's called the time of Jacob's distress. It's called the great tribulation by Jesus. So if you're with me, still turn to Revelation 16. Revelation 16, we're going to read there about the battle that's going to come near the end of the tribulation period. And let's just keep your finger here in Ezekiel 38. Don't lose your place. Revelation 16 describes a battle at the end or near the end of the tribulation period. Revelation 16, verse 18. It says there, And there were flashes of lightning, rumbling, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. If you remember from Ezekiel 38, Verse 19, it said, On that day there shall be a great earthquake. Okay? Stay, move back to Revelation 16, verse 19. This earthquake caused the great city to be split into three parts. The cities of the nations fell, down in verse 20, and every island fled away. No mountains were to be found. Ezekiel 38 said this, The mountains shall be thrown down. And the cliff shall fall, which is no mountain shall be found, what it says in Revelations. And every wall shall tumble to the ground. The cities of the nations fell. Seems to kind of mirror that. Revelation 16, verse 21. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of hell because the plague was so severe. Ezekiel 38. Verse 22, I will rain upon him and his hordes and many people who are with him torrential rains and hailstones, fire and sulfur. We could also read Revelation 19, which is still a continuation of that battle we're reading about in Revelation 16. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds flying directly overhead, saying, Come and gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Ezekiel 39, verse 4, says, I will give you to the birds of prey of every sort and to the beasts of the fields to be devoured. Look, the battle itself mirrors the one we're reading about here in Revelation 3. Revelation 16 through Revelation 19. And the aftermath that we read about logically fits better after the tribulation and prior to the beginning of the millennial reign. But maybe, you know, maybe your mind is, uh, your, your concern, because the text says 
that the people of Israel will be dwelling in peace. You know, in a city of unwalled, you know, no walls, no bars, no gates. And the tribulation is not a time of peace for Israel. Well, not exactly. The first half, the first three and a half years will be a time of peace. They will enter into a peace treaty with the Antichrist. Daniel speaks of this, and Revelation 6 points to this as the Antichrist comes riding in on a white horse. That's why I said earlier, I think they had this false sense of security in Ezekiel 38. The Antichrist will break this treaty, he will rally the troops, and he will attack, only to be met by the Lord. And there's one more verse that really points to this being a tribulation battle and not an end of the millennial battle. Ezekiel 39.21 says this, 39.21, And I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed, and my hand that I have laid on them. And the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. Look, prior to the battle that we're reading about here, Israel's still unconverted. This verse doesn't make sense in a battle toward the end of the millennial. Because Israel will be converted through the millennial. They'll be the light to the nations. But here, the people are separated from their God and they're unregenerate. They're in their land. But in that day, as Israel sees the Lord as her only hope, she will cry out to him. He will respond. And from that day forward, they will be his people they were intended to be. So just a few little applications and we'll, we'll call it a night. First thing we need to no take note of is God's sovereignty throughout this, again, is never compromised. Not once. Man's actions are never excused. Not once. God had his plans God has His plans. God has His purpose. God has His purpose. Same with us. And until your plans and purposes conform to His plans and purposes, you will be found working against God. If you notice too in verse 12, if you still got your Bibles open, it had that little phrase there I ran past. It says that they dwell at the center of the earth. That Jerusalem or Israel is the center of the earth, and that's probably not geographically accurate, but everything in God's plan, everything in God's prophetic timeline centers around Jerusalem. That's a fact. The people of Israel will again be gathered from where they've been scattered. They would dwell in their land, the land God gave to their fathers. They were erroneously entered into a peace treaty with the Antichrist, only to be betrayed, only to be attacked. With no one to turn to, they finally turn to Christ. He hears them, he defends them. It's Jerusalem, not Washington, that is the prophetic center of the earth. Verse 11 had a phrase there. It says that they were dwelling in their land securely. With no bars, no gates, no walls, right? They had this facade of security. And I thought, we too, we have an obsession with security. We do. National security. It's all over the news. National security, border security, energy security, economic security, food security, environmental security, cyber security, financial security, and on and on and on. Look, and all of these are fine. 
but they will lull us to sleep. To be overly concerned with these temporal securities is as foolish as God and His plans. Look, the one area in our life that we should concern us more than any other is our eternal security. Look, when we breathe our last, will we be comforted by the Almighty Savior? Or will we be found fighting against God? Look, we, we, like the people of Israel, we need to change our mind on who God is. Change our mind on who we are. Bow the knee and worship Him. I mean, He's, he's laid this out so beautifully. And again, He doesn't strike at them when they, when they can't defend themselves. Be ready. Plan. Build. It doesn't matter. You're not going to foil the plan of God. That's the God we serve. Bow the knee. Worship Him. There is none other. If you would, please stand.